more than likely, you found yourself glued to the television set on a Tuesday night watching Abby do all kinds of forensic evidence tests to help find the bad guys on the CBS show NCIS. Or maybe you've seen the forensic analysts on CSI Miami. Watching these shows may make you feel like, wow, I'm a forensic expert now. But there's a lot you don't know. What does science tell us about, for example, the validity of fingerprints or footprints? Is DNA evidence a sure thing? I'm Bob Long. Welcome to Stats and Stories. It's a program where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Our focus today will be on forensic evidence. Before we start talking to our special guest, though, about uh, that particular topic, we asked our Stats and Stories reporter, Emily Potton, to go out and talk to the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation, BCI. It's an agency that performs all kinds of lab tests on everything from ballistics to fingerprints to DNA evidence for police departments throughout the state of Ohio. If you're a fan of NCIS or CSI Miami, you know the critical role forensic science plays in solving crimes today. People once thought eyewitness testimony was the most important in convicting someone accused of a serious crime. But prosecutors will tell you the most convincing evidence for a jury is scientific evidence. DNA, fingerprints, hair follicles, firearms testing, tire tracks, the list goes on. Local police detectives are schooled in proper techniques for collecting this evidence, but it's the laboratory scientists at places like the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Identification who analyze it for possible matches. BCI Administrator Aaron Reed says most people don't understand how specialized this work is. Reed notes there are numerous labs within BCI, and specialists are assigned to only one, such as latent fingerprints. They examine things like ridges on feet, so they can look at the, your footprint, palms, so the, your whole palm, the center of your hand, and of course fingertips. And the ridges that they look at are developed based on movement in the womb, so no two individuals have identical prints. Reed says the use of DNA has improved dramatically in recent years, and so have the precautions that are taken in handling evidence. It's standard procedure to wear gloves for all types of lab work, but Reed says precautions go beyond that in handling things like hair follicles. Our biological sciences, people oftentimes will be wearing masks, and they don't speak to each other when they have evidence out. Um, so the, the tests that they can do now are more going to be more sophisticated and more sensitive, meaning that they can find DNA on more evidence than they could previously. Enhanced chemistry has allowed BCI to reopen some cold cases and find DNA that wasn't found before, and it also has helped people who were wrongly convicted. Reed feels shows like NCIS and CSI may help people better understand the importance of DNA, but she says TV makes it look easier than it is. Those shows simplify some very complicated matters. That can sometimes result in some unreasonable expectations. So you don't always find DNA evidence at a crime scene, and that's not necessarily because you don't look hard enough. It just may not be there. Aaron Reed says the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation has seen a tremendous increase in demand for its services the past few years. She says BCI has been able to expedite the results of its laboratory work thanks to increased staff and the use of robots. For Stats and Stories, I'm Emily Potton. And joining us on Stats and Stories today for our discussion of forensic evidence, uh, the man who comes up with a lot of the topics for this show, that's Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor. And our very special guest today is Indiana University Statistics Professor Dr. Karen Kafadar, and she's done a lot of research on forensic science. Karen, welcome to our show today. Thank you for having me. 
you know, I I always date myself when I do this, but when I was a young journalist back in the 70s <laughs> covering criminal trials, I can remember things like, you know, blood work that was brought up as evidence and fingerprinting and things like that. But it just seems to me this whole field has just grown exponentially in the last 20 to 30 years. Is that correct? That is correct. And so it's not just fingerprint identification, as the uh, BCI um, uh, investigator was mentioning. It's now shoe prints and tire tracks and blood spatter and arson, handwriting analysis. Uh, One of the more recent areas is computer forensics. I know, for example, Miami University has a gentleman on the police force here who's involved in that kind of work, doing computer analysis of your hard drive. So that that's, again, another area that's just probably opened, what, in the last five to ten that years? That is correct. That mm-hmm. is correct. About last five or ten years. Speaking of tire tracks, I remember a famous murder case I sat through that I'd never seen anything like this. They actually rolled tire prints out on a great big long uh, conference table and and showed and was one of the key pieces of evidence in the case showing the guy's tire tracks versus, you know, the ones that they had from the lab, just a, another pair of tire tracks that were similar. So it's really interesting what you find. Yeah, and, and it raises a number of issues. Yes. For example, <clears throat> if they did that just once in the courtroom, what if they did it two times, or three times, or four times? You know, how much differences, how many differences would they have actually observed in a controlled situation like that? That, that sort of starts the, the issue of, of my, my question for you, which would be, how did you get involved in this? I mean, it sounds like there's a, this long history, and you go back to Sherlock Holmes talking about forensic ideas and mis- solving mysteries and cases. So how did, how did you get involved in the statistical components, and what are some of the statistical questions that, you, that you've encountered and addressed as part of your work? So that's a really interesting question. I never really thought much about it. Uh, I certainly always loved mystery stories, but didn't really think much about it. But about 10 years ago, I was asked to serve on a committee for the National Research Council that was asked to look at the uh, reliability and the validity of the tests that they were using for comparing lead in bullets. So the lead that was found in a bullet at a crime scene versus the lead that was found in the bullets at a potential suspect's house. So they would find a suspect. They would say, think you're a suspect. They'd seize the bullets. They'd do chemical analysis on the two bullets. And the question was, are the statistical tests that they're using valid? So what does validity mean here? So if the validity here would mean that if the um, uh, the tests according to their procedures, indicated, yes, there is a match. Was it really a match? Did they did those two bullets really come from the same source? Did that crime scene bullet really come from the potential suspect? Um, if, uh, if the uh, report comes back and says, no, they don't match, did they really, is that true? Were they really different sources? So they, the, the issue of validity was, were the statistical tests valid? for making that kind of an assessment. Were they coming up with the right answers? You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. And we're focusing this time, as you can tell, on the whole issue of forensic science, 
especially in these criminal cases. I'm Bob Long. With me are our regular panelists, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, and our special guest, Indiana University Statistics Professor Dr. Karen Kafadar. And we wanted to find out what people on the street know about what we're discussing today. So one of the questions we wanted to ask them is, how reliable do you think fingerprint matches are? Extremely important because fingerprints are so different. Everyone's different, so it makes it a lot easier to solve crimes. I think they're important because everybody's is different, so it's like kind of easier to identify the person if you have their fingerprints. I think they're really important because then you can find the exact person. I think it's very important because there's a lot of people that get accused of certain crimes and because there's no real evidence they're against them or for them it's just it's really hard to determine who actually did it. I've watched a lot of crime shows and it's different than the real world but it seems like fingerprints are very helpful and I know there are some crime labs and I know New York uses them a lot. Cincinnati I don't think we have a big problem with crime so we don't really have a lab but it seems fingerprints are really useful in solving crimes. Well, I think, Karen, you may have also, you mentioned uh, your your work with the National Research Council. Were you also, you, you, I know you, you mentioned one that you did about 10 years ago dealing with basically ballistics. That's but, correct. But you've also done some work with fingerprint evidence as well, have you not? That's right. Um, following that committee, uh, it opened up another whole issue, which was, well, if there are issues with the reliability and the validity of the testing of bullet lead, then what about other forensic methods? And so about four or five years later, there was another National Research Council committee, which was asked to look at a broad range of forensic evidence. How reliable are these methods that we think of that some of which I mentioned earlier, shoe prints, handwriting analysis, tire tracks, hair analysis. Uh, um, DNA was not covered, and that's because an awful lot of attention has been devoted to DNA. And the scientific procedures there were fairly well documented. But what about all these other procedures? And so that was where um, I became much more interested in all the other kinds of evidence and hair analysis and fingerprint analysis because they are the mo- they were the most common. So you you talked about validity and, and reliability issues, and and one thing that's that that's implicit in, in a lot of what you said is there's errors that could occur in, this, in these decisions. And it, it always seems like th- these types of errors are the same kind that, that seem to arise when we talk about health screening studies. That's exactly correct. Yeah, so very similar kinds of ideas. So it, it's That's sort of, correct. So can you talk a little bit about you know, how, how you might, might study, study how these, per- these systems work or how these, these types of evidence work and which, how you would evaluate whether one's better than another? That's a great question. And l- let's use the health screening Uh, modalities as a a baseline, because there is an area where in medicine they've really worked very hard to design the studies so that they are above criticism. So uh, the National Institutes of Health just recently through the National Cancer Institute released the results of a study to to see just how, how sensitive and specific is, say, the test for prostate cancer, the PSA test. Okay. And they had a randomized study. They flipped a coin, you know, for someone to, who entered the study. Do they get 
the PSA test on a regular basis or do they follow their usual medical care? And at the end of it, they were able to compare the death rates in the two groups. Very well controlled study. Um, now, in contrast, you would take something like the different methods for uh, identification, say, by fingerprints. So there's really not been the same kind of parallel investigations. You know, how, how often do they claim that somebody had prostate cancer when it turns out the biopsy shows that they didn't versus um, the other way around, someone turns out. Those kinds of studies haven't been done with almost all of the other kinds of, thing, um, of forensic evidence. So if you were going to design the, the perfect study to evaluate fingerprint evidence, well, what kind of would be some of the things you would think about, some of the factors you'd consider, and, and what might it look like? And that's a really important issue is to think about working with the latent print examiner. What are the factors that can influence the decision that's made? And some of them would be how much of the print is there, how, high, how good is the quality of the print, is there even a measure of quality of the print so that we could put in the study prints that are, say, low quality versus prints that are high quality? Is there an objective measure for that? We're working on that right now. Um, what are some of the other factors of the examiner? Level of experience of the examiner. Um, what, uh, how the fingerprint was collected. Was it collected on the table? Was it collected on wood? Was it collected on metal? Uh, so you would want to have a study where you have a number of different factors, and you would especially want to make sure that the, uh, the examiner has been given two prints to identify whether or not they uh, actually came from the same source. You would want to make sure that that person didn't have any prior information, and the person who gave them the prints didn't have prior information. That's what we call medical studies double-blind. And right at this point, there have been no, you know, really sort of solid uh, studies that a statistician would claim are above criticism. And if the stat study can be above criticism, then, you know, you'll feel a lot more reliable about it rather than being able to say, well, it's a study, but they didn't do this. Yeah, I, I think what you're saying, and, and, and a lot of times when you talk to crime scene investigators, one thing they'll say is, you know, you, you do get, as you were talking about, partial prints. And obviously, that's going to be a little bit different than if, I, if you've got my full hand uh, on, on some object or, or something like that. But also the material itself, I can, I can see where it may not show up as well, for example, on wood versus metal, you know, those or glass, those kinds of things. There would be differences, wouldn't there? Absolutely. To give you an idea how hard this is to really collect reliable fingerprints, while I was on this committee looking at all methods of forensic science, one of the committee members had his house broken into. <laughs> and, the and the police could not lift even one fingerprint, not even his own. Wow. Oh, no. Yeah. So that's how hard it is mm -hmm. to get really uh, any kind of fingerprint, much less a usable one yeah. that could actually later be associated with something from a 10-print fingerprint system. The interesting thing, though, too, you mentioned the expertise of the investigator or the lab specialist. Uh, for, for example, I know from reading some things about BCI here in Ohio, uh, they, they have lab analysts who have an average – 
tenure of about 20 years. So when you're talking about that, you're talking about people who they've been doing this, and when they go into a court of law, people are much more likely to believe what what they're going to say based on their experience doing this. I think that's very correct. And uh, there's an uh, advantage of that and there's a danger to it. The danger, of course, is that, you know, to a, uh, if you're sitting on a jury and somebody says, I've been doing this for 20 years, you just don't question their expertise. Um, the advantage to that is that those people do have a lot of insight. Okay. So what, how can we use them to say, what are you really looking at when you're looking at a fingerprint. And by that, try to get some ideas to, okay, which features should we investigate for how, how sensitive and how distinctive are they? At this point, you know, as she mentioned in that uh, introductory piece, the BCI investigator, she said, you know, we look at things like ridges and furrows and bifurcations and so forth. Well, how distinctive are those? Do we have any measures of how distinctive they are? Those are the kinds of questions that need to be answered. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and again, we're focusing this time on the importance of forensic science in our criminal investigative system today. I'm Bob Long. With me, our special guest today is Indiana University Statistics Professor Dr. Karen Kafadar, and of course, our regular panelist, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor. As part of our discussion today, we had another question for folks on the street. Do you think shows like CSI Miami or NCIS are realistic in portraying the way forensic work is done in a crime lab? No. I think uh, they make it seem too simple. They make it seem as if the process is really easy and really quick when in reality it's really long and tedious. Probably not because I mean, people say it's because they're really attractive, but no, I think it's maybe they don't show any injustice that happens within the criminal justice system or how fast the process actually goes. Not at all because it takes a lot longer than a week to figure, thing, figure out crimes. It's way too easy for them. I mean, it shows them in the labs and stuff, so I figured that was pretty accurate, but I guess the time span is inaccurate. I don't, it just seems like that is really not probable that that stuff kind of happens in like the whole, I don't know. I feel like they play it up a lot more. I feel like it's not all the truth, but I feel like there's some truth to it. I think they're trying to get people interested and they're just trying to exaggerate, just like you can do with other shows, like with the courtroom. You can make it seem a lot more interesting than it really is. You know, one thing that I remember years ago when DNA was first being discussed, any intelligent defense lawyer is going to go, oh, now, wait a minute. How, can we believe this this new type of science? And I, I can remember some criminal cases where DNA was really, you know, we probably find that hard to believe today, but was really called into question. Is this is this really valid? So talk a little bit about DNA evidence, how it has developed in, in the last decade or, or so. That's a great story because, in fact, when the National Research Council, I was not involved in this panel, but when the National Research Council was asked to look at this, uh, the first report came out in 1992, and it did not have as much statistics in it as it really should have. And the statistics community poked holes in the report. And it was so embarrassing, they had to conduct another report. And they did. And they did it well. And that's a situation where it's a good contrast to be between fingerprints. Fingerprint analysis, 
based on a lot of experience, I will not discount the experience, but they'll look at the print and they'll identify features. But you don't go to a DNA sample and say, well, let's see, I'll look at this feature and this one <laughs> and this one. Yeah. It's all well specified. Yeah. Which aspects of DNA are they investigating? Why? Because that NRC report identified 13 specific features which are very distinctive. They're very, very distinctive. So for John's DNA at those 13 places to match exactly mine is just really unlikely to happen by chance alone. So there's been a lot of science behind that. So one of the things that, just as a follow-up, the, the idea of a standard protocol for data collection, it seems like a, a key distinction between some aspects of what you would say would be really high-quality and validated forensic evidence and, and less less validated, less mm -hmm. supported. You, you also mentioned a couple of concepts earlier that the idea of sensitivity and specificity. Can, can you talk about those ideas? I mean, there's, a, there's this important distinction between what you know and what you're trying to predict in, in that case versus trying like a positive predictive value of some endpoints. So could you talk a, just for a second about that? And those are really key concepts in statistics um, for assessing assur uh, assuring validity and reliability. Sensitivity says, suppose I give you two, sor two uh, I uh, items, and they really did come from the same source. I know that. I know that because I gave them to you, okay? You're going to give them to the examiner. The question is, if you did that a whole bunch of times, how likely is it that the examiner comes back and says, yep, yep, they came from the same source. You want that to be high, right? You really did give them two, two same things. Uh, that, now, how specific is it would be to say, I know I gave you two different sources. I know that because I'm the one who prepared the samples. How likely is it that you came back and said, yep, they're different? I, and you got the right answer. So those are sensitive and specificity. Those are very important. You want them to be very high. Now, the question that comes up is, you know, Bob was in the courtroom, and he, and he sees investigators, examiners, saying it's a match. Well, that's now a different – that's the reverse, okay? That's the reverse. Somebody comes in and says it's a match or it's not a match. The question we want to know is – how likely is it that they really came from the same source? That's the real issue, because that's what happens in real life. You're presented with the results of a test, and you want to know, did you get the right answer? Now, that, those two concepts, positive, how positive, what's the predictive value of that? Is it, you know, are you positive about it, or you, did, you, did you discount it? Is it negative? Those are related to sensitivity and specificity. They're related to it. They're also related to how likely it is that they would match in the first place. Okay? <laughs> right, right. So there are right. those three aspects, but they're all very, very important for this final answer. How likely is it that the examiner came up with the right answer? Are there, from, from your work that you've done, the research you've done, the kinds of forensic evidence that you would say today are probably the most reliable? So there are two issues here. One is the actual science. Where has the science actually been validated with reliable studies? Uh, the other one is, you know, the procedures. Okay. So uh, you're always going to have quality control issues. You're always going to have samples being mixed up. So apart from that, 
And those are quality control procedures. That's the job of the manager of the lab to make sure that, you know, the process is going smoothly to minimize errors in process. Uh, but apart from that is the scientific underpinnings. Uh, DNA has a scientific, scientific foundation. There's still some issues with it. For example, mixtures. Okay, if there's a sample that happens to have two pieces, you know, two different mixes of, of DNA, can we adequately resolve those? Okay, do we have the technology to do that? It's a good statistics problem. Okay. Um, apart from DNA, there have been no other, and this is what the report came out in 2009, and it said, uh, apart from uh, my, uh, nuclear DNA, there is no other forensic evidence which matches the scientific validity of DNA. So, so now we, we get back to these these shows that were alluded to, and, and, and you know, for people listening, the... the uh the CSI Miami is is not CSI Miami University. Just in case there's any confusion, <laughs> that, <that's> just... <laughs> but you know what, what you know what do you think about the the impression that that these types of of programs give in terms of of this type of evidence, in terms of forensic evidence, and just the power and the the broad applicability and, and strength of it and, and identification. I think they're great shows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They probably don't match reality. Um, you know, but they they solve the whole crime within an hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gee, that's I know amazing. that doesn't. Yeah, happen. yeah, right. <laughs> and they, they always seem to get matches too on the <laughs> fingerprints and their the forensic evidence. <laughs> Is highly reliable. You know. There is a great deal more uncertainty in the results than is being conveyed. And uh, conveying uncertainty doesn't sell shows. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing that, that you also can have happen in, in courtrooms, too, is uh, I'm thinking of one case where a palm print turned out to be the decisive piece of evidence. And the reason it was a decisive piece of evidence, a guy had broken into a home of a couple that he knew thinking they were away at church on a Sunday night. Well, the mother or the wife was homesick. Um, so he broke the back window of the house uh, on the door, reached in to unlock the, the door. And of course, she was there in the kitchen and he had to end up killing her because she would have been able to Identified, but the only way they really nailed him in this particular case was this BCI agent testified that when he broke the glass, uh, somehow a piece of the the glass that would have been down inside the wood was pulled up. His palm print was on that. The only person that could potentially have put it there, according to that agent, was the guy who shattered the window, um, which was really an interesting thing. And when I talked to jurors afterwards. That's what led what them to – and it was interesting, though, because the point I wanted to make was there was another defense called forensics expert who tried to dispute uh, the BCI claim. So do you run into some issues like that, too, where you might have one scientist look at the evidence and say one thing and somebody else who might say something else? And that is exactly the kind of thing that can happen because of this issue of not knowing which features of the palm print right. – one would yeah. look at. Mm -hmm. So it's not like DNA where they have already identified 13 highly sensitive, highly, highly specific features. You know, forensic expert one might say, well, I notice these four are the same. And another friend say, well, I notice that these four are different. Mm -hmm. So which ones, which features are the ones that you should be focusing on? 
You're listening to Stats and Stories. Again, we're focusing today on the importance of forensic science, and our special guest is Karen Cafadar from Indiana University, Department of Statistics, and uh, my cohort here, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor. We're almost uh, running out of time today, getting close. So, John, I wanted to kind of turn it over to you for any uh, final questions you might have today for Karen. Well, well Karen, this has, been, this has been great. It's been a delightful delightful visit and conversation. I mean, I, I really appreciated the, the distinction between kind of what you're, what you're conditioning on when you're thinking about sensitivity versus predictive value. I, you know, you, you made a statement just about the shows that conveying uncertainty doesn't sell shows, but it seems like conveying uncertainty reflects reality. So, so one of the challenges that, that we might say is how, how might we facilitate the conveying of uncertainty in the reporting of this, ty- this type of material and in terms of th- in the production and promotion of this type, these, these types of ideas? Yeah, and uncertainty actually pervades everything. And we see it a little bit in, for example, now you see in polls, they will normally say the margin of error in this poll is 3%. So there's scientific underlying, you know, that, that 3%. But in any event, the fact is they were communicating some uncertainty. So how do you convey enough of an uncertainty and yet show that despite this uncertainty, we still are able to make an association here or lack of association? And the only way to really do that is to encourage more studies, more science, and more research in these methods so that ultimately you will narrow the uncertainty so that you can make these kinds of assessments. But, you know, in the absence of, you know, I think there's too much of folks. People always like yes or no answers. They don't want, well, (laughs) yes, but maybe it's not yes. And uh, I I think that um, everyone... Uh, everyone would feel a lot better if they knew that, well, you know, there's, there's, we we believe that there's, this is the answer, but there is a small chance that we're wrong. So so part of our role is to make sure people are ready to hear that. That is correct. And also maybe to make them expect that. That is correct. It should be something where you come to expect it now in a poll. Yeah. You come to expect to see, well, what was the margin? Was it 3%? Yeah. Was it 5%? Was it 1%? And I know from talking to BCI analysts through the years, they spend a lot of time going to conferences, learning uh, different techniques. And it's like I think what we've kind of learned today, I mean, this this whole thing is still evolving and always probably will be. We're always going to be looking for more scientific ways to make sure that, that what, we're, what we're presenting as evidence is, is going to be valid in a courtroom. And it, this is a great role for statisticians because one of the important things we want to be able to do with statisticians is encourage the design of studies which evaluate which method is more reliable. And, and even having statisticians working with journalists has proven to be an okay thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But I think that's a really good point, that it's a great time to be a statistician. Yeah. Karen Cafadar, as always, we want to thank you for sharing your thoughts today about forensic science. Very interesting part of our show today on Stats and Stories. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, well, you can do that, too. You can do it by sending us an email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we'll always talk about the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. <laughs>